Chamripsua. Good morning. This morning, we're going to be talking about the Cambodia SST group who traveled last spring. My name is Laura Leishner, and I was one of the 24 students, along with Keith and Ann Gaber-Miller and their children, Niall, Simon, and Mia. We traveled there for six weeks were spent in Phnom Penh, and six weeks were spent out in the countryside. I'm going to give a little brief background to Cambodian history before we begin. From around the 9th to 13th centuries, Cambodia was considered one of the strongest powers in Southeast Asia. And during that time, the Angkor temples were built in Siem Reap. And now, Pete, and now Sheldon and Krista are going to talk. Good morning. My name is Krista East. And I'm Sheldon Good. And while on SST, we learned about the Communist Party known as the Khmer Rouge, which ruled Cambodia from 1975 to 1979. This grassroots communist movement, with its infamous leader Pol Pot, was responsible for an estimated 1.5 million deaths by execution, starvation, and forced labor. The Pol Pot years, as many of our host families referred to them, officially began in April 1975 as the Khmer Rouge captured the capital city of Phnom Penh and immediately required all people to exit the city. Subsequently, the regime required all able bodies to work on collective farms and forced labor projects. The common Khmer Rouge motto, to keep you is no benefit, to destroy you is no loss, is a testimony to their lethality. After just two weeks in Cambodia, we were encouraged to interview two survivors of the Pol Pot years. Though some of us felt our language skills, relationships, and cultural understandings weren't prepared for such an encounter, many of these conversations provided significantly poignant memories. I'll be reading from the interview that I did with my host mother in Phnom Penh. My ma was 10 years old when the Khmer Rouge took over. She was living in Phnom Penh with her family, and when the regime swept through the city, she was separated from her family and sent to a children's labor camp. Her father, a teacher, was killed, as well as seven of her siblings. Her mother survived and later remarried, and Ma said she was able to survive because she was a child who could work and because her uncle protected her. She was 10 years old. She worked out in the rice fields and helped cut down trees for fertilizer from dawn till dark. The children in the camp ate once a day, a meal that she was often in charge of cooking. They would sometimes scavenge for food to mix with their watery rice porridge, but lived in constant fear of the Khmer Rouge finding out. She talked about le eating leaves from the forest, which turned out to be poisonous and made her throw up. She spoke of all the things they didn't have, schools, pagodas, toilets, shoes, food, the things in life we take for granted and the things in life we need to survive. She laughed, kind of a nervous laugh, a lot while we were talking. It was strange to have her laugh when talking about such times. Once or twice, I thought I saw a shadow cross her face. She said that when Pa comes back from the provinces, he can talk to me about the Khmer Rouge too, and said that whenever he talks about it, he laughs and laughs and then cries and cries. So I suppose beneath all the smiles, laughter, the almost casual way many people speak about this, there are tears and pain. I asked her if she is angry. Yes, she is angry. Yes, she wants justice. She said the leaders need to be punished so that it does not happen again. 
She asked with another one of those nervous laughs why America did not come to help. I wish I knew what to say. I'm not sure what her justice would look like. It's obvious that it is difficult to put a name to, a fa to the face that wreaked havoc on her childhood. Everything is because of Pol Pot. Pol Pot killed my father. All the people hate Pol Pot. Yes, Pol Pot was a madman who ran the show, but many were involved and many committed the crimes. Pol Pot is dead, so who will they blame now? My mother kept asking if I believed what she was saying. Yes, of course I believed, but I had no way to comprehend or relate to the experiences she was telling me. She talked and talked and talked, signaling perhaps a need to still work through a lot of her past. I can only hope that there will be ears that will listen and heed her story. Hello. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nathan Yoder, and I'll be sharing some facts about Cambodia through the convocation. Um, some fun, others just interesting. And the first one is that um, the Khmer Rouge still shapes Cambodia today, um, and 50% of the population is under 15 years old. I'm Johnny Meyer, Luke Kreider, and Paul Shetler. This morning we'll be sharing with you about three of the various service opportunities from our group. Some of us taught English, guitar, or martial arts. Others tested water, learned how to weave Cambodian silk, or worked with women's shelters. Among these diverse assignments, some felt like they were doing worthwhile work, while others had more time to focus on building relationships and learning from our kind hosts. For the service portion, I, along with Luke and Paul, worked for International Relief and Development Agency, Church World Service. While Church World Service is an, uh, a religious organization and acts as a mission agency in some countries, the Cambodia office is specifically devoted to a church-based relief and development work. Paul, Luke, and I were asked to be part of a survey team to travel around Cambodia and interview 70 Cambodian pastors about the state of their churches and villages. The churches were all members of Kampuchea Christian Council, a non-denominational network that provides basic education and training for pastors. We traveled around the country with three young Cambodian translators conducting one or two hour interviews with pastors every day. In order to help us better understand the theologies of the pastors we were working with, we included a number of basic theological questions as part of our interview process. We were also asked to prepare and lead two separate full day theological seminars for rural Cambodian pastors who had received little or no formal theological education. In developing the topic for these seminars, we decided to focus on how the attending pastors could create strong individual churches with the resources available to them, and how the churches could work together to be the body of Christ as part of the worldwide Christian church. Throughout the process, the three of us enjoyed the opportunity to see much of the Cambodian countryside as well as to connect with and learn from our Cambodian friends and coworkers. Yeah, so I'm just going to tell a quick story about one of the most powerful experiences that I had while on service. Um, yeah, and this happened rather uh, early on in our trip and really did a lot to shape the way that I came to understand the work that we were doing. Yeah, so this was our, during our first trip uh, deep into the heart of Cambodia, and I, I met uh, pastor Sam Kem, who is the female pastor of a very small, very rural church. Um, 
to make a longer story short, I guess I just found myself being really amazed at the work that she was doing um, to minister to the needs of both her congregation and um, her broader community. Um, just a very, very positive presence um, in this, yeah, really small, really needy community. Um, and I guess up to this point, I'd, yeah, I found myself being really cynical about the Christian church in Cambodia and what it was up to, um, the way it was expressing itself. And um, yeah, Pastor Kem just, I guess, really did a lot to help me find hope and the potential for these little communities to be creative and constructive forces in their village. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a turning point for me on SST and did a lot to, like I said, a lot to shape the way I understood what we were doing. Um, I always looked back at Pastor Kem when I needed to re remember some hope. Um, she sort of became the model for how I wanted to envision, um, yeah, these churches that we were, the future of these churches that we were talking to. And the fundamental question for us during our project was, what should our role be? What can we contribute in, during such a short time? Well, thankfully, Church World Service provided us with the basic framework of these interviews and seminars. So that much was taken care of, but we were left with the huge question of what we thought was important for these churches to be talking about. What constitutes development for these churches on a number of levels? Where are they headed, and what should their relationship to the global church look like? We decided to focus our work, as Johnny said, around the topic of what it means to be the church in Cambodia. Our interviews and seminars tried to stimulate conversation around the questions of church identity, purpose, and mission. We certainly brought our own Anabaptist perspectives to the table, but we tried to come as brothers in Christ, ready to listen, learn, and engage in critical conversation. This opportunity stretched us and provided us with an opportunity for growth and reflection. I hope that the people we interacted with in the small congregations and at Church World Service during this project would say the same. Ninety-five. 95% of Cambodians practice Theravada Buddhism and 2% practice Christianity. And it's kind of funny because the Buddhism comes out in funny ways when you're in Cambodia. Um, one of those ways is uh, when you're crossing the street. I think this is true of other SST experiences that... Um, traffic is just a whole event unto itself. Um, and I was doing some reflecting on that um, and really, yeah, crossing the street just is a skill that you have to learn. Um, and so here, here are some reflections and some tips about how to get across the street. Crossing the street requires prayer and practice. You won't learn how till you walk a mile across the city. Keep on walking on a rigged scale, one side weighted by hybridized tradition, motos maneuvering market alleys, delivering foreign greens and blocks of ice, dodging cyclos and turning on a dime, weaving lines between bulky tuk-tuks overflowing with limbs and brown skin, and on the other side, weighted by the scale of globalization, by the price of inflation when foreigners hit the market and charter buses, charter buses custom-fitted with AC, SUVs with tinted windows playing shadow trees on sunburnt streets, no speed 
speed limit to get from point A to point B. Everything with wheels flies past while you wait, wondering if there is a balance. You're a one-person obstacle course, and nirvana isn't really your thing. Steady now, count on your self-awareness and consciousness. Look both ways, always. Step one foot at a time, but don't try to follow the lines. There are none. Don't rush. The worst you can do is lose focus or forget the world. If you're in it for yourself, you're a danger to everyone else. If you step in that, it happens. Know when to go and when to lay off. You can stop in the middle of the lane. There are none. When the traffic gets too thick, pause. If there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to be. On the median, you meditate, wait, patience, deep breaths. Life is suffering. Open your eyes before you finish crossing. If the, if the path is clear, go when the light is red, because in front of Buddha, there is no right or wrong, only compassion and understanding. Do good, love mercy, walk humbly. Don't try to get to the end, get to the meaning. Crossing the street is a curse. Survival is a perk. And if you uh, don't want to cross the street, you can take a moto or a tuk-tuk, which are the most popular forms of travel in Cambodia. And you can get around pretty cheap um, if you've mastered your haggling vocabulary. And watch a slideshow. Yeah, I'd just like to make uh, mention that I kind of learned how to play this instrument while on service. And my desire to show you what a Cambodian instrument looks like overcame my insecurities about my playing abilities. <laughs> <laughs> so just keep that in mind. Also, um, I'd like to clear up any uh, questions you may have about my shorts. Um, I'm not just wearing loud shorts. These are probably the most Cambodian thing you're going to see today. <laughs> Um, Angkor Wat is the biggest religious structure in the world and it's visible from space. I'm Anna Mast and this is Abby Graf and I will be reading both of our accounts as Abby has lost her voice. Um, our service assignment was with the NGO Rehab Craft. This is an organization that is both run by and employs Cambodia's, Cambodians with disabilities. About 3% of Cambodia's population is physically disabled. Um, this is, includes people who were born with physical disabilities or victims of landmines, landmine explosions, or other accidents. Rehab craft pays about three times as much as factory work, which is really important as there's a huge stigma against people with disabilities in Cambodia. Um, there's a workshop in Phnom Penh that employs about 20 people where some of the crafts are produced, but there are about 30 other self-employed producers with disabilities that Rehab Craft also supports. And Abby and I were living in a village of silk weavers. It was a rural women's cooperative about 30 miles outside of Phnom Penh. All the women from 
preteens to the elderly <coughs> took part in weaving. Joanna Landis and Nicole Bauman lived in a similar village about 10 miles away. We spent the first week just observing, thinking they knew we wanted to learn. When it was translated that we did actually want to learn to weave, my host sister set up an extra loom for us. She showed us each step in the process of preparing the silk, from buying it to dyeing it to spinning it on spindles, and then how to begin weaving it. Since we were set up on one loom, we took turns weaving. Many women from the village came by to see our progress, comment on our skill, and give us advice. This provided opportunity to build relationships with, the, with these village women and show our respect and awe for their fine weaving skill. After spending most days weaving for about seven hours, we were able to finish three scarves by the end of our service. Silk scarves and other souvenirs are super easy to find in the many markets in Phnom Penh. And I think we all scored fake North Face um, backpacks too. Uh, I'm Dirk Miller. I'm Janie Beck. Uh, sickness is a part of life. However, on SST, being sick can be more uncomfortable, made all the more difficult by not being able to clearly articulate discomfort or symptoms. <coughs> Knyom Chu, I'm sick, only goes so far. Now Janie will tell her story. I'm going to be reading a short journal excerpt about a time when I was sick on service with a fever. And just for some background information, um, Krista East and I lived in a household of women on service, and we kind of adopted two host mothers who we called Ma Cha and Ma Khmein, older Ma and younger Ma. So this story centers around my Ma Khmein, um, my younger Ma. After walking home from the office, I felt another serious fever coming on. As soon as I walked in the door, I lay down on my bed and burned up. You probably could have made ban chao on my forehead. Makmain, who rarely speaks, but who is someone I have grown to love dearly from a distance, came to my rescue. Without a single word, she came over and put a cool, wet washcloth on my forehead. Then she brought out a basin and many more towels. She slowly and gently wrapped my arms, neck, stomach, and legs in mummy wrapping. She massaged my legs and my hot, hot feet with cool cloths. As I was lying there, I, was, I realized how much I missed touch on SST. I think my mock mane has healing in her fingers. I really felt like her daughter in those moments. Her hands were soothing, protective, worried. All I could do was whisper, Akun, thank you, a few times. And she spoke only once, though her hands spoke it over and over again as she wet and re-wet my wrappings. Kunsrai, daughter. Even though I was feverish and miserable, that is one experience I feel so fortunate to have had. Because of her silence and shy nature, Makmain has always been a bit mysterious to me. I was surprised at her willingness, even eagerness, to tend to me when I was sick. Some, Cam some Cambodians 
practice the healing technique known as cupping, in which um, heated cups are placed on the skin and create marks as they cool. And a few SSTers even got to experience it. I think Isaac and Colin did. Hi, I'm Isaac Beachy. And I'm Colin Dick. And uh, both of us today are wearing typical Cambodian clothing. Uh, <coughs> in Khmer, this is called a kerma, and uh, Westerners would call it a Cambodian scarf. And it's pretty simple, it's just a uh, rectangular piece of cotton. And uh, I think every Cambodian owns many of them and uses them often. While Colin and I were on service, uh, we were in the country among many different villages, and this is what we would, after working, this is what we would wear around the house and also to shower in because showers are often done on the street or somewhere really public. Um, and so we're, like he had said, they're pretty, kamas are pretty versatile. So this is one of the, one of the main ways you see men wearing kamas. Uh, on the picture you see old women often wear it like that. Uh, but we're going to show you some of the other some of the cool ways that you can wear a kama. So uh, Cambodians eat a lot of rice, and uh, it's harvested all by hand, and uh, it takes hours and hours to harvest rice. And so while farmers are out in the field, they need to protect their neck and uh, head from the sun, neck and head from the sun. And so <laughs> this is how you harvest rice. <laughs> And uh, if you ever find yourself wishing to climb to the top of a palm tree and you need a big knife while at the top, uh, this is how you make a knife holder for, uh, this is called a kambat. And uh, it's a representation, it's not real. I don't know if you can tell, this is made of wood. <laughs> uh, and it's a Cambodian knife. <laughs> Another, another way that we wear, wear kermas, or people wear kermas is there are street workers in Phnom Penh and other big cities, and their job is to basically they have big brooms and they sweep the streets with them, and there's a lot of pollution and exhaust and dust in the air, and so they try to cover as much of their face as possible. They, have, they also wear large green coveralls. Um, so this is one of the styles they use, they often use to try to protect themselves. <laughs> He's not doing it quite right, but that'll, something like that. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, lastly, this is a, a style of using the kermah that well, we were taught in, in our classes in Phnom Penh that there's a way to use a kermah, but we never actually saw anyone do it except for ourselves. So this is a way that we like to use the kermah. You just tie little knots in the end, put it over your shoulder, and you can make little pockets. And that way you can, like when you're walking, you can carry things, like if you have a little monkey, or <laughs> rocks, or shrimp, or something, then you can carry that. All right, so that's our demonstration on the versatility of the Kama. I think they uh, touched on it a little bit, but Kermas uh, are very useful when the whole neighborhood is watching you take a shower.
I'm Dustin Combs. And I'm Tim Showalter. Uh, most college students kind of cringe at the thought of getting up at 4.15 in the morning to go and meet somebody. Uh, but me and Tim cringed all the more when we found out that we were going to go meet somebody we had never met before. And we were told to meet them by somebody we had never met before after talking to them once over a really staticky cell phone several days before. Um, in a country where nothing really runs on time, we were a little concerned. Um, anyway, this is how our service assignment started. We got up really early. We, got, we went out and we met our driver who drove us around Phnom Penh, which we didn't really understand because we were supposed to be leaving Phnom Penh before we switched drivers. And then we began to realize just how much we didn't understand about the culture when somebody got in the driver's seat with the driver for the remainder of the seven-hour drive while the passenger seat only had one person in it. Um, anyway, so it took us about seven hours to travel 150 or 200 miles. Uh, on this trip, we drove uh, underneath and around a lot of heavy machinery that was doing road construction at the time. Um, and then when we got all the way out to Ban Long, which is a, the provincial capital of Ratanakiri, um, a city that on the map doesn't actually even have any roads going in or out of it, uh, we finally met our uh, contact. Yeah, and our contact there was this guy named Gordon who is uh, from Australia and was, has been doing work in Cambodia for about 20 years. Um, and he, he, well, yeah, there's lots of stories we could tell you about Gordon, but the first thing, he just like looked at us straight in the eye and said, all right, tonight you're going out to the villages. And the villages were indigenous villages about 10 miles outside of the provincial capital. And keeping the provincial capital, as Dustin said, doesn't have any roads coming into it. Also, the main street is a dirt road, and it's a, a very small little town. And so we were going 10 miles outside of this on little dirt moto tracks. Um, and so we packed up our stuff, and these two guys that we'd also never met before or seen before came on a moto and offered us the back seat. And so we jumped on and rode, bouncing on these little tracks out to this village for the weekend to get a taste of the indigenous life. Um, once we were there, uh, we were informed, or we were informed before we went, that we were going to be uh, doing kind of a test run to see how well we would do, to see if we could actually live with these people. Um, but anyway, one of the, the tasks we were doing while we were there a lot was gathering food because these people don't just go to the market every day, they go out and forage for their food every morning. So one morning we woke up really early before the sun was up and we were told we were going fishing. And me and Tim were both kind of excited because we both grown up in the country and we thought, well, heck, we can go fishing, this should be easy enough. Um, so anyway, we walked for a good couple of miles and at this point it's only 6.30 in the morning but you're already sweating profusely and we get to this little stream that I think we're going to jump over and keep going, but we don't, we stop. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so then we met up with a little nine-year-old who had one of these knives, and he proceeded to chop away at the jungle for probably a half an hour. And you know, we were kind of looked at and laughed and expected to chop away at the jungle too. Anyway, about three hours later, we had successfully rerouted this little stream and dammed it off. And once we did that, we built a bunch of dams throughout the section that we had um, walled off and then began to bail out all of the water from this little section of stream that we had isolated. And after about eight hours of strenuous labor in the hot uh, southeast, southeast Asian sun with one bottle of water and no lunch, we walked through the mud and picked up four little crabs and a couple handfuls of like minnows um, and, and piled them in a, in a pot and then cooked them and ate them for dinner.
Yeah. And then we, uh, so I, that was the first weekend we were in Ratanakiri. Um, and Ratanakiri is in the far northeast of Cambodia, and it borders Vietnam and uh, to the west and to the east and Laos to the north. And it's starting to get into like the jungle country of, of Cambodia. Um, we lived, we, so part of our time there was living three weeks outside of Ban Long, um, the provincial capital, in these small rural villages with indigenous folks. Um, and I, first, first I was struck by these communities as National Geographic-esque. And what I mean by that is we were waking up and going to bathe with topless 50-year-olds. We were hunting and eating bats and monkeys with slingshots and crossbows. We would go out behind the school to um, go number two, and our feces would be recycled immediately by the pigs. We woke up, I woke up at 4 a.m. one morning to a lunar eclipse, which I've, I well, I found out it was a lunar eclipse because there was banging on, on like the kettles and the, and the pig troughs, and I asked my brother, what's going on? And he said, we're helping the moon come back. It's been eaten by the sky. And we went to a wedding, Dustin and I attended a wedding where we danced around a, a cow's head on a pole and, um, and chanted some. But I, I guess I, I didn't come away thinking about National Geographic and talking about how bizarre my host village was. What I do find myself talking about coming away is how quickly these rather bizarre circumstances, by our standards, became rather normal for me. And I was impressed in the end by the similarities between our lives here and their lives there, how families and communities in northeastern highlands of Cambodia, the Jirai, the Krung, and the Dumbuan peoples are struggling just like families here to, to stake out a reasonable life and to be able to, to make a living and to live in, in relationship with their families and friends. There's some uh, pretty remote areas of Cambodia, but um, many Cambodians that do have electricity out in the countryside use car batteries that get recharged once a week. Oh, wow, that was so handy. Um, my favorite, my name's Kelly Yoder, and my favorite part of Cambodia was eating four meals a day just for breakfast, and then about four meals after that. And my not favorite part about Cambodia was language classes. But it was always fun when we got to do something like wear kermas or learn how to wear kermas. Or one time we um, got to sing and dance to a traditional Cambodian folk song, which we're going to show you now. Uh, technically translated, it means something like music, happy, dance, Saturday, relax. Uh, and the beauty of the song for me was uh, the chorus is pretty, pretty easy and easy to pronounce, and it's actually a song that I can still remember. So uh, Greg is going to teach that part to you, and when we're done, you'll be about as fluent as Dirk ever was. So. Oh. <laughs> I'm not actually going to teach you the chorus. Everybody's going to get up, and we're going to sing it now. Um, the chorus is just one word, rapia. You can sing that with us, please. You'll definitely be able to do it. If not, just say ya, ya, ya. That'll make sense, too. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty much just, you'll know what to do. I, I promise. <laughs> Put it down. Let's go. Hmm. 
Prochum kniri riesa bachan. Johong maizan cho chen kumai mensal. Yung rom tam pleng tam pleng atripen trau. Bing yet tinga sao chia tinga chuk sam rap ke moi pi a rapia ya ya rapia. Rapia ya ya rapia. Rapia ya ya rapia. Rapia 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 moi pi. Sumlia, how are you, everyone? You're dismissed. <laughs>